Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, hello, everyone. It is Wednesday night. We are live and it is time for Friends in Fiction. So let's get rolling. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Whitson Harvey. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. And this is Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we are so excited to be welcoming Angie Kim, the author of Happiness Falls. But first, just a quick reminder to check out all the fun things going on in our Friends and Fiction community at friendsandfiction.com. There, you'll find links to our bookshop shop.org page where our books and books from our guests are available at a discount to the friends and fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa and to our weekly email newsletter sign up. And you'll also find a link to our friends and fiction writers blog podcast, a new episode of which drops each Friday on last Friday's episode. (laughs) Talk with William Kent Kruger, one of our favorites about the river we remember. Yeah. And coming this Friday, Ron and Patty will be talking to Margaret Rankle about the comfort of crows. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast or directly on our website at friendsandfiction.com. And over on the book club's Facebook page, the group is reading a book I've heard about called Bright Lights. <laughs> Merry Christmas, our very own Mary Kay Andrews. The well, latest that was on my TBR. <laughs> <laughs> You can join them for that live online discussion on the book club page on Monday, November 20th. And don't miss their Friendsgiving celebration on Thursday, November 16th. And saying Friendsgiving makes me think of friends. And that makes me think of Matthew Perry. Oh, I know. What sad news this week. And sad book news, too, since he's written a book that... Yeah. It was so open and honest. It's uh, yeah. I, I feel very heartbroken over. Do you guys feel heartbroken over that too? Oh, oh my so. gosh! And it sounds really punny to say it. I don't mean it this way, but it, it's one of those people that you feel like you lost your friend. Like yeah, it, yeah. it really yeah. does. Yeah, it's really yeah. sad. Yeah. It's it's a shame. You know, they were talking about this. I think on the Today Show this morning. Um, and I I wonder if he realized what a big value oh, I think he, he did. Would like I mean, but but do you think he knew people felt this way about him personally, not I just. So. Yeah, I think I, so. I, I hope so too. I wait, but just what what an absolute heartbreak. You're absolutely yeah. right. So anyway, but all right. Friendsgiving okay. is not a heartbreak, and Friendsgiving, Friendsgiving is on Thursday, November sixteenth, yep. on the book club page. All right, absolutely, Sorry, absolutely. You no, know, no, you're absolutely right. But okay, so so many fun things going on, as there always seem to be in our friends and fiction community. But speaking of fun things, tonight we have Angie Kim. So without further ado, let's get started with her. I'm so excited to talk to her. Angie moved as a preteen from Seoul, South Korea to the suburbs of Baltimore. Can you imagine that? Culture shock. Like 
I thought moving from Philadelphia to Fort Lauderdale was a big deal. I think she, she went, sold to South Korea to the suburbs of Baltimore. She studied philosophy at Stanford University and attended Harvard Law School, where she was an editor at the Harvard Law Review. Her debut novel, Miracle Creek, won the Edgar Award, the International Thriller Writer Thriller Award, the Strand Critics Award, and the Pinkney Prize. Pinkley Prize, and was named one of the best books of the year by Time, The Washington Post, Kirkus, and The Today Show. One of Variety Magazine's inaugural 10 storytellers to watch, Angie has written for the New York Times Book Review, The Washington Post, Vogue, Glamour, and numerous literary journals. She lives in Northern Virginia with her family, and we're so glad to be welcoming her, welcoming her tonight to tell us a bit about her latest novel, Happiness Falls. Sean, can you bring Angie on? I'm so excited to be here. Oh, this we're so awesome. happy Don't to have out. you. And we know you're still out on tour. So thank you for fitting us into your, um, to your busy tour schedule. We're very happy that you're here with us. Definitely. I'm so happy here. And uh, excuse my being here in this brand new hotel room I just checked into. So I'm hoping that everything goes okay. Well, so, so, so far, far so, so good. good. Exactly. All right. Now, Angie, from the moment we begin Happiness Falls, we are hooked. Your very first line, we didn't call the police right away, is the first hint of the mystery to come and the first hint of just how tangled this mystery is going to get. And then you draw us in with Mia's very unique first-person voice, which includes footnotes to her own thoughts, which is a touch that I loved, and I think that really set this book apart and made it really just unique. So it's a novel about a family in the D.C. suburbs whose son Eugene has autism, along with a rare syndrome called Angelman syndrome. And it's about what happens one day when Eugene returns home bloodied and frantic, and they realize mm -hmm. the father of the family has disappeared. So that's a little teaser about what Happiness Falls is about. But Angie, this book is about so much more. So can you tell us a little bit more about Happiness Falls? And then the question we always love to ask, what is the book really about at its heart? Yeah, so thank you so much for that introduction to my life and also to this book. Um, yeah, I always say that this book to me is about a family in crisis. And it's about a mystery of the missing father, of course. Um, but it's also really a coming of age story, not only for our narrator, Mia, who is uh, a 20 year old, the oldest of three children in this family, but is also a coming of age story really for the entire family. So in a nutshell, it opens when the father of this biracial Korean American family goes missing in Northern Virginia. And um, the only person who might know what happened to him is 14 year old Eugene, the youngest of three children. And he is, um, he has Angelman syndrome and he also has autism. He has a dual diagnosis and he has motor issues and he cannot speak. So in order wow. to figure out what happened to the father, the family has to really come together mm -hmm. and learn how to communicate with Eugene and also how to connect with each other. And, um, and they not only have to, 
find out what to the bottle, they also have to try to protect people from the because they are very suspicious about what might happen. Um, you know, with respect to Eugene's role, possibly, with respect to the father. Um, and as for what it's really about, I think what it's really about is what it's like to be a non-speaker. Um, I really, you know, it's about what it's like to not have that oral fluency that our society equates with intelligence. Um, it's something that I experienced myself as an immigrant. It's something that people, characters like Eugene and, um, you know, experience in the real world. I teach creative writing to groups, three groups of non-speakers, most of whom are autistic. And that's one of these things that is really just at the core of what I wanted to explore and what I wanted readers to take away from this book. Oh, wow. You know, I, I want to note quickly uh, that Debbie Cooperman Stone, who's one of our, um, our longtime uh, Friends in Fiction member, is a big supporter of all of us. She says, my, my nephew has Angelman syndrome and I saw so much of him in Eugene. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's somebody who has, is very accustomed to it firsthand and, and really feels like you nailed it. So yeah, such thank, a great you. thank you. You know, I don't give a lot of thought to if someone is mute that we also may, might think they aren't. And I just finished another book, um, Frozen River, and there's a mute character. And the struggle between thinking because they can't talk, mm. that they aren't thinking. And yeah. you, you wrote about the same thing. It's really fascinating. Yeah. But you've mentioned before that one of the first short stories you ever wrote and published a decade ago in 2013 was actually about these people, Mia, John, and Eugene, the three siblings at the heart of this story. And that when Eugene came to you as a character, you didn't know about Angelman syndrome. Can you tell us more about that, your first experience with these characters, how they grew into a full-length novel? And more, can you explain a little more what Angelman syndrome actually is? Absolutely, yeah. So. When um, I started writing in my 40s, so being a writer is actually my fifth career. I used to be a lawyer. I was a management consultant. I was a dot-com entrepreneur. And then my hardest job of all my it was being a stay-at-home mom for about 10 years before I turned to writing. And um, one of the first short stories I did write was about these three siblings and back then, um, Eugene it was a non-speaker in the short story as well. But what was interesting was that I thought, just like the family does at first in this novel, that Eugene had a single diagnosis of autism. And okay. then, yeah, and then what happened was that I always saw him, even in this short story as having very distinct characteristics. And so he came as this child who was always happy. Mia, in fact, in the short story, calls him our happiest baby in the world. Because, oh, wow. Yeah, because he was always smiling and laughing and had this outward appearance. And so of happiness and joy. So the family was, you know, always wondering about that and thinking about that. And no matter what his struggles were, sort of like, 
but he's very happy. So it's okay. Like, you know, all of these things are okay. And, um, and, and also he had an unusual attraction to water. He also had motor difficulties. So when I started working on this book and, um, and I knew that it was going to involve something that had to draw out and depend on the fact that Eugene is a non-speaker and that the family has to really go ahead with that and, you know, with those assumptions about that the family had about whether he has, you know, thoughts, uh, how he can communicate, all of these things. Um, and so when that story, when I was working on that story, I was looking up this spelling methodology where somebody like Eugene learns to communicate not by speaking but by spelling things you know one by one on the spelling board that's held in front of them and when i was doing that research i came across angelman syndrome and i thought i've never heard of this what is this so i looked it up and it was one of these like gifts from the writing universe you know wow. it's it's i it so the angelman syndrome definition that i read which is from the angelman syndrome foundation um, which described Angelman as a rare genetic condition in, that is characterized by um, motor difficulties, by uh, children being in a, their inability to speak usually, um, and also being unusually drawn to water, and oh, also, wow. right? And also having this very unusual presentation of outward appearance of happiness, persistent beatific smiles and laughter. And I just thought, this is Eugene. This is Eugene. Wow. So I need to figure out what this is. And I need to, so I reached out to people and people in the Angelman community are so tight and supportive. And so they welcomed me into the community they, you know, they not only answered my questions and allowed me to interview them, but I got to visit some of them. I got to visit some of the experts. It was unbelievable. And, and some of them even served as my beta readers as I was writing the story. Wow. Oh, Angie, that's, yeah, yeah that's incredible. It's so fascinating when we imagine a character and then yes. find out there's a name for it. Right. I mean, that's, right? Yeah. It's, it's so like, a, it's a gift. You just have to like yeah. grab it. You know, yeah. take yeah. it from the air. Nope. Yeah, take Absolutely. it down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we were talking about big magic on here. Somebody was talking about that like last week or a couple weeks ago. And uh, that's, it's like that universal consciousness. Like there's just something there for you. And it's really exactly. cool. Happens. I love that. Like yeah. right I love okay. it. So we've obviously like we're we've we've touched on this, but I'm 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 going somewhere, so bear with me here. So okay. <laughs> we've that one of the themes of this novel is difficulty communicating and how it's perceived by others. And I thought that was really clever how you wove that in on so many levels. So of course we have Eugene, who we've discussed, who people assume has a low IQ and the emotions of a child because he can't speak aloud. And then you have Mia recalling living in Korea as a child, not knowing how to speak the language and being treated like she's not very bright. There's also a great scene where Mia recalls her mother, who was Korean born and moved to America as a teenager, saying that she went from being a smart girl with friends in Korea to feeling lost and frustrated because she couldn't understand or say anything. 
Even today, she says, I'm a different person in English than in Korean. So can you talk a little bit about this underlying theme of being underestimated when language fails us? And how much of that is personal to you as you are someone who moved as an 11-year-old from South Korea to Baltimore? Yeah, so it's completely personal to me. And that is one of the reasons why I think I'm obsessed with, you know, the plight of um, people who have trouble with speech in my fiction. Um, I've written a lot, many short stories about this as well, including, you know, the story of me and John and Eugene. And um, both my uh, debut novel, Miracle Creek, um, and this novel deal with that also. Um, so I moved here as an 11-year-old in middle school, which is such a hard time anyway. Oh, yeah. And so I went overnight, just like Mia's mom felt. From I, I went from feeling like a smart girl, doing really well in school with lots of friends, able to speak, getting in trouble for talking too much sometimes, to all of a sudden not being able to talk at all. And there's the frustration, you know, the logistics and all that kind of stuff, of course. And my parents had warned me. They said, you know, it's going to be frustrating. But it, what I didn't realize and what my parents, I don't think they even realized I would have this, was the shame. There was so much embarrassment that I felt not being able to speak. And I kept on telling myself, like, you're being ridiculous. Why, why should you feel this way? Like there's a good reason why you can't speak yeah. the language, right? Ta talking to myself, but it didn't matter how much I told myself that yeah, it, it was okay. I felt like a bobble. It's a Korean word, meaning a person who's, you know, like that just doesn't have any intelligence, like nothing in their brains. And I felt like that. And I realized for the first time how much our society values oral fluency, how much mm -hmm. we equate that, we equate it with intelligence without even meaning to. I feel yeah. like it's just so deep, you know? And then when we have characters who talk fast, like, you know, the West Wing characters, like all those Aaron Sorkin yeah. characters, we're like, oh, well, obviously they're, they're smart because yeah. they talk fast, you know? Like we just have that kind of a bias and it was a bias in myself. So I felt ashamed. Mm -hmm. I felt stripped of my intelligence, but more than that, like, in, you know, stripped of my self-confidence, of um, the sense of competence. And so even to this day, I think I'm one of, I'm very, very insecure. Um, and no matter what, it's just so deep, deeply rooted in me. And so when I found out that there are people who have lifelong conditions that render them locked in, in a way that I experienced, what I experienced was just a sliver. It was nothing compared to what these characters, you know, what these people go through. Um, people like Eugene, the character in my, in my novel, and, you know, people like my creative writing students that I teach. And so I just thought I have to explore this. I have to sort of, you know, write to understand this thing that I don't understand, which is why so many of us do equate oral fluency with intelligence and do what I can to shine a light on that tendency, that assumption that we have. Yeah. Wow. yeah. That's incredible. Can we just take a moment to discuss the fact that you are writing these books in 
not yeah. your primary right? language. I mean, that, that, well, that is incredible. That's insane to me. Well, except that, okay, so here's what happened though. So I learned English, um, you know, before puberty and I, that so puberty is apparently the line at which okay. you can learn a language and have it really like that's when you can actually learn a language and not have an accent anymore so my cousins who came like the same time i did but they were a little bit older they actually still have accents so it's fascinating wow, that's interesting yeah and and yeah. one of the reasons why i think i'm so interested in the dynamics of siblings is because i'm an only child and so being an only child, I didn't really have that day-to-day -day reinforcement of Korean, um, especially since I was very uh, angry with my parents for making us move to this country where I didn't have any friends and all that kind of stuff. So I did that whole bratty thing where, you know, I... Um, I you like, ruined my life. I know, exactly. Well, and I really did think that I wasn't being overdramatic. They, I really did feel like they had, you know? Yeah. And so I was just like, okay, I'm not going to speak to you. Like, uh, you know, very minimally, you were going to talk. And also my parents were working such long hours. They had sacrificed mm -hmm. their entire lives for me. And, you know, which I, of course, now I understand. But back then I didn't. So we, so we didn't really speak that much. All that to say that I kind of lost my ability to speak English. I mean, to speak Korean. Um, to the point where I can understand everything right now. You know, like if I watch a K-drama, I don't need subtitles or anything. But when I try to speak in Korean, it's really harder for me. Unless I've been around yeah. like my family for it's a long time. It's been like flipped on its head. Like, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Gosh, it's really a theme of your life. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm very interested in linguistics. So the mom in this in Happiness Falls is a linguistics PhD and yeah. Mia, the narrator, is very interested in linguistics as well. And so all of these things kind of came together into this novel for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Now, one of the fascinating things about the syndrome that Eugene has is that people who have it often smile to express pain rather than happiness. And that ties into the plot of this book so beautifully. I really liked the piece of the plot that dealt with Mia's dad's quest to understand happiness. And I've read that you actually had the idea for this portion of the plot before you knew that this would be a book about him going missing. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about Adam Parsons' quest for happiness and how that is how that inspired you? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been obsessed with theories of happiness my entire life. And of course, I gave that obsession to the missing father. Um, so I think that my interest in happiness comes again from what my immigration experience, you know, because back in Korea, we were so poor. We were, you know, the three of us were living in one room of another family's tiny house and we didn't have indoor plumbing. We barely had electricity and we did not have like TVs, you know, on any of that kind of stuff. And so when we came to the U.S., I, we were told it's like you won the lottery. You are so lucky. You are so happy. I was told I was happy, you know, like when I was here. And so it was really, really interesting how 
um, just it made me think about happiness and what that means to be happy and objective versus subjective notions of happiness. So the father um, is obsessed with happiness theories about quantifying it and maximizing it and experimenting on his family even like, you know, fun experiments kind of, but without them knowing about it to try to figure out oh. what the happiness thing is. Yeah. And so it is really, really interesting um, to, for me to sort of think about how, you know, what happiness is from this father's perspective, of course, but even more than that, how we sometimes don't know the people that we love, like especially the people who are our caretakers, you know, like our mothers and our fathers who yeah. are the stay-at-home parents. And so part of the discovery that our narrator Mia makes is about, you know, this father and trying and basically like learning who he is as a person, you know? Mm -hmm. I think so often we don't think of as our of, of our parents as fully formed people. Yeah. <laughs> they're not allowed, you know, they're not allowed to have, for instance, sexuality. Yeah. They're yes. not allowed to, um, to fail. Yeah. There yes. we have this idea of, uh, you know, they're heroes. That's what yes. we want them to be. And, and they don't have a life before we came along. Like yeah. their life began with us. It's like kind that. of like when you're a really small child and you like you see your teacher at like the grocery store and it's like your whole world just blows up because you're like, yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and she and she in, in fact, Mia, the narrator actually says that I think she said in, says it in a footnote where she's like, you know, I actually don't think of people like my parents and their friends as like real people like I don't really pay attention to their faces they seem like blobs that form functional roles and so you know they think of them in this domestic yeah. context and you're like how do you even have time to do anything other than take right. care of us and go yeah. grocery shopping yeah. and everything else you know yeah let's touch on those footnotes um the book is written from Mia's first person point of view and each chapter includes footnotes things she wants to add that sometimes don't have much to do with the plot, but are at the same time really valuable or thought-provoking asides. Now, first of all, I want to know how you got past that past your editor. Right? <laughs> so my editor, yeah, so my editor adores footnotes, as does my agent. Like, so they, I, and my UK editor loves footnotes. So they are all like, yes, more footnotes, please. That's crazy. Um, I mean, just what an yeah. interesting choice for fiction, though. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I can't I, imagine yeah. what my editor would say. <laughs> I, I can. <laughs> I mean, I think it's brilliant, but um, you know, uh, I in the publishing world, yeah, um, people have ideas about what you can and can't do with fiction, and you're lucky that they had such a fluid idea. I am. I'm really, really lucky. I I, I feel like um, some of my favorite novels have, you know, David Foster Wallace, um, mm -hmm. Special Topics and Calamity Physics, which was a book that my agent had, um, you know, repped. And so I, I feel like they're very, very into it. My editor also oh, was the editor for, longtime editor for David Mitchell, you know, Cloud Atlas, which has such an, a weird 
structure and things like that. So he was like, footnotes, that's nothing. Footnotes are, <laughs> that's like, that's like conventional in my, from my perspective. Absolutely. So no, we had um, yeah. Elizabeth Acevedo on and her family oh, war. Yes. She has footnotes. She, she like does. For each yes. thought she has, she has these footnotes and you're tempted to skip them. But when you don't, you learn so much more. It's well, actually, just like you, it's an amazing idea. But you know what's funny? So one of the things that my narrator, Mia, says, I think on page two, is she tells people, you know what? I know that there are people like my mom who don't like asides and do do not like footnotes. And so she's like, so this is what I'm going to do. Because, But this is the way that I think. I can't help but have all these tangential asides. So what I'm going to do to be nice to people like my mom <laughs> And readers who might not like that is I'm going to put those asides in footnotes and you can skip it if you want to. If you don't have, and, and in the audiobook we, we made it so that we said you can just zone out, you know, while, while we're <laughs> oh, reading the footnotes. So, so she cute. does give permission for people who don't like that, who want a faster read who really want to focus on the through line of like what happened to the father and what's going to happen to Eugene with the police. Those people can skip the footnotes or they can come back to it later. It's fine. That's awesome. Angie, how did they deal with that in the audio book? Did they just read them at the end of each chapter? No. So, you know, in the, in the book itself, um, you know, it's like, it, it sometimes they're in the middle of a sentence or, you know, sometimes they're in the middle, middle of a paragraph or whatever. So in, for the audiobook, we sort of went through and we marked where we, it should go. We changed it so that it would, it did not come in the middle of a sentence. It did not come in the middle of a paragraph, usually at the end of a scene or a paragraph. And then um, the narrator who read it just said, like, footnote, blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's end interesting. Of end of footnote. And then so as I was saying, you oh, know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like so that. We made it, yeah. So we made it, like, more conversational. I like yeah. that. Did you know awesome. from the Did you know from the beginning that you were going to need to do that with this, with Mia? Was this special to Mia? It was. It was special to Mia. And I sold this book based on the first 60 pages. And there were footnotes in those. And I told my editors, I said, listen, I'm just putting it in this footnote format because that's the way that she thinks. But, you know, we can, we can talk about that at the end. If we want to get rid of it or streamline it or, you know, or have it in parentheticals instead of, you know, footnotes, we can totally do that. And, you know, they were just like, yeah, let's just like make, you know, let's have you write. And then, you know, three years later, we were like, yeah, okay. Where are we? <laughs> so so it, ended, it ended up working out okay. But um, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But th there are definitely people who have told me I don't like them. I tried a couple of them and I decided to skip it because it was too distracting. And I was like, great, totally oh, fine. Yeah. yeah. I am a footnotes person. I feel like the thing that I'm most like drawn to and reading and writing. I love the inner life of a character and like what makes their mind more so than the like page turning parts of it. Yeah. Okay. So Angie, you and I are members of a very special club because we're both only children, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. yeah. And I read in an interview where you said that as an only child, you're obsessed with sibling dynamics, which definitely mm -hmm. shines through in this book. So, um, I, like I said, I'm an only child too. And I have a series called the Peachtree Bluff series that deals really specifically with like family dynamics and sibling dynamics. And, um, of course, you know, I'm an only child. And so I'm interested 
to, to ask you, what draws you, you, you hit on this a little bit, but what do you think draws you to those dynamics and how did you tackle them so realistically without having siblings? So I have three boys okay. who are very sibling-y, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I feel like that really helped a lot. And I feel like that because I was kind of like so envious of other people who had siblings, it just made me like sort of think about them and and sort of observe them as I grew up, you know? Um, and so I've had a lot of thoughts about siblings and a lot of them are idealized. And then all those ideals kind of like fell apart and, you know, exploded when I had kids of my own. And so, uh, so a lot of that is from, from those types of dynamics. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about this particular group of siblings is that they're biracial. And I felt like that's one thing that I haven't seen explored as much um, is just the extent to which the racial elements and the ways of, you know, that that can manifest can yeah. be different in the other siblings. And because I saw that in my own kids, like some kids can present as much more white and some kids can present as much more Asian. And what does that do about your thoughts about, you know, uh, about race in this country and your role within it and those types of dynamics? So I thought that was really interesting, too. And I wanted to explore that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that's I'm an only child with an only child, and I never wanted siblings. So you and I are different. <laughs> Ooh, that's so interesting. My you enjoyed the full attention. I love it. Yeah. And but, people would always be like, "Oh, it's so sad you don't have siblings." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? You guys, <laughs> I have it made. Y'all are you're wrong." Right? <laughs> oh, that's so that's funny because my husband is an only child too, and we were like, "Let's have five kids." And we, were wow. this, like, we were on this like hey, let's have a huge family thing and then we had three and then we got to three and we were like all right we are done <laughs> i hit number three and my husband was like four and i was like with your next wife <laughs> yeah <laughs> not me because yep. i'm done i'm here with my daughter and she has two and she's like how'd you do it and i'm like you yeah. don't want to know okay. yeah no <laughs> Yeah, um, right. three is so hard. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had three in five years. It was something. Yeah. Wow. It was something. But yes. let's go back to your book because there's yeah. so many things to explore. But you also made the decision to set this book during the early days of the pandemic mm. when people were still being forced to quarantine after COVID exposure and the world looked different than it does today. And I think I know that masks add an extra barrier. My five-year-old granddaughter we kept saying she was a little, she's not delayed now. I need her to be quiet. But she just was a little <laughs> delayed. And we all said it was because of the masks. Yeah. And um, can you talk about the decision to deal with the pandemic head on rather than choosing a different time period? Absolutely. I actually tried to choose a different time period. You know, uh -huh. I didn't want to set it in the pandemic, especially since the idea of this um this family and, you know, dealing with the happiness theories and then the non-speaker theories, all those elements um, 
they started marinating in, you know, like 2018, 2019, when Miracle Creek was being published and it was first coming out and I was on tour and people were asking like, what are you working on next? And I would sort of say, well, it's about this family, blah, 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 blah. And, um, but then when I actually sat down to start drafting the novel, you know, that, that, I write from beginning to end. And so I was like, okay, what is the, what is the inciting incident here? I don't know. Let's, let's write to figure it out. Um, that was June of 2020. And I tried to do it be set outside without naming the time period or anything. And I couldn't do it. I was having so much trouble um, focusing during that time anyway. Yeah. And I was having so much trouble remembering what life was like yes. without the pandemic because it was so intense at that time you know in june of 2020 and my oh, kids crazy. you know my kids were like you know they were at home and they were everything was changing and so much about the father's um ideas about the relativity of happiness had to do with the changing the your conception of your baseline of your life and it seemed to me that when we were going through the early days of the pandemic, our entire society's baseline was changing drastically. Yeah, so it seemed like a good backdrop, yeah. you know, just to set it again. So again, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and set this family's life in the pandemic, especially since so a lot of my friends who have kids who are like Eugene, um, with needs, um, they were having so much trouble with, you know, dealing with the masks and the sensory yeah. issues and then the people yeah. on walks outside yelling at them and, you know, yeah. all of those things and them being terrified that something like what happened with Eugene was going to happen where, yeah. you know, because they can't speak or they can't communicate properly and they're also having these sensory meltdowns that the combination of them was going to bring the police in and escalate tensions. So putting all of that together is what enabled me to find a way into the story. So I told my editor, you know, after writing the first 60 pages, I was like, listen, we have, I, I sold it in um, December of 2020. And I said, I have no idea what's going to happen with this, yeah. you know, with this, this pandemic or with this book, with the plot line. I have no idea what happened to the father. Um, let's, let's see what happens. And then we can always try to strip out the pandemic because it wasn't meant to be a pandemic novel. It was just a backdrop, you know? And he said, that's great with me. And then when I finished writing it, we sort of decided together, you know, it's actually interesting because of the societal space lines changing because of things like the masks that are covering up Eugene's smile, which is a form of a mask in and of itself. So all of these things, we were like, let's leave it in and That's make awesome. sure that people know that it's not a pandemic novel per se, yeah, but it's, it's a backdrop. Yeah. 
No, I, I think it was the perfect backdrop with which to explore or against which to explore that question of happiness. Like I, I think <laughs> I think it underscored it perfectly because I think a lot of us asked questions just like that as we yes. went through the early days of the pandemic, you know? Yeah. You, you had yeah. to find new ways to seek out that happiness. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Very well done. So we have one more question for you, Angie, just a quick question. But before yeah. that, I wanted to read two reader comments to you that mm. our Meg Walker has pulled. Um, one of them is from Claudia Dursa. She says, the most important thing about books is that they inform us and make us more compassionate. And she says she can't wait to read this book that her book club has chosen for this spring. So she's right. I mean, this is a book that informs us and I think makes us more compassionate about something we might not have known about earlier or might not have understood. And speaking of that, I also wanted to mention uh, this quote from Diana Kuhn McGoldrick, who says, as a retired speech language pathologist, I applaud you for exploring characters with this challenge and the misperceptions that are often there regarding their level of intelligence. So, um, and, you know, I I think all of us agree. I think this was uh, such a well done book. Um, It it really opened our eyes to something that I I think we didn't know a lot about and and made us made us really think. So, yeah, thank you. Thank thank you so much. And also, I wanted to say with respect to the book club um, reading, I would, anybody who is watching this, who can um, feel free to reach out to me through my website. My email is on my website and just mention Friends in Fiction. And I would be more than happy to zoom in to your book club. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would love that. What a generous offer. What a generous offer. What a gift to our readers. Thank you so much. No, I would love that. I would love to do that. Thank you. Angie, we know that your tour is not quite over yet. So before we let you go, can you tell us a little bit about where our viewers can find you on the road and also online in the coming weeks? Yes, absolutely. So I am um, online. I'm at uh, angiekimbooks.com. That's my website. And that has my tour, the remaining schedule on there. Um, I am also most often on... um, as far as social media goes, although I'm trying really to hard to kind of stay away from it because, um, so I'm on, uh, Instagram at Angie Kim ask, but I will say, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I love doing events. I get so energized from doing events, whether, you know, zoom conversations like this with you or in person, I'm about to go to Belcanto in long beach right now. I just had this amazing, um, one with Sibby, um, with Gabrielle Zevin a few days ago. I love doing these events, but I hate the pressure of like having to post pictures like, and yeah. say like, please come visit me and things. So I'm trying to actually enjoy the process that in, you know, of the actual substance right. of the events and focus less on that. So maybe less on those, but, um, so, but I am on uh, available on those platforms probably the most, and also on Facebook too. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, Angie, we loved having you so much. This was so nice to, to dig in and to talk about this great book, and mm-hmm. um, and and again, what a gift to our readers that you're willing to join book clubs. That's fantastic. Oh, yes. No. Absolutely. I love that so much, and um, and I love the wonderful. Um, Get, getting to talk about and sort of celebrate um, the non-speakers and, 
you know, and their accomplishments and trying to dispel the notion that just because they can't speak, yeah. that they can't understand or think that is such a disservice to them. And so I just really want to make sure. Um, and if any people want to watch some of my students, my non-speaking creative writing students at work. Um, uh, so, you know, Happiness Falls was the September book club pick for uh, Good Morning America. And as part of that series, they did a segment. They actually came down and spent a, a day with my students and me. And so you can actually see them. Yeah. So if you go, if you Google GMA, Happiness Falls, you'll see a couple of different um, segments. One is like an in-studio segment that I did, but one is one with my students where they are actually spelling things out and sending messages. It's really special. Yeah. Oh, Thank you. I awesome. love that. I'm so I'm going to go see that. As that. As Me as, too. Yeah. 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 All right. To all of you out there, please make sure to check out Happiness Falls out now. And thank you so much, Angie, for being here with us tonight. Thank you, thank Angie. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. We loved it. All right. Now, do not forget, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are going to be back next week to welcome Meg Cabot. Meg Cabot of Princess Diaries fame. She's the <laughs> author of Enchanted to Meet You, which is brand new. We have such a fun episode in store for you. We always do, and we cannot wait. So thanks for being with us. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you next Wednesday. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. Bye. Night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.